Heavenly Father, I struggle to sing those words. I like my feet on the sand a lot of the time and lack the faith to step out into the waters with you. Lord, I'm sure some of my friends here are that same way. Lord, may our time together worshiping you in the song and in the, the word here now grow our faith and our trust in you deeper, Lord, that we can follow wherever you may lead us. And Lord, as we look into your word now, may it penetrate our hearts and our minds and our feet to action. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. My name is Andy Sipes. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor Wayne spent this last week teaching at uh, one of the Pine Cove family camps, but in his stead today, we have uh, one of our own, uh, Dr. George Hillman. He and his wife, Jane, are members here at Frisco Bible, and it's always fun to have him teach, whether it's a men's study or, uh, or up here on Sunday morning. Um, George is a professor and the new dean of students down at Dallas Seminary. He's been in ministry for a number of years, and he's just an all-around all, all swell guy. And uh, delighted to have him here this morning. Welcome, George. At, before the first hour, he said, what do you want me to say? I said, well, just tell me, tell that I'm an all-around good guy. And so he actually did that. So thank you. The check's in the mail, I guess, or something like that. Uh, we're third service people. And so first service, we saw a bunch of new faces. Second service, we're seeing a bunch of new faces. But we've called Frisco, Frisco Bible home for the last year. We've lived in Frisco over 19 years. Um, but when we were looking for a church about a year ago, can I tell you church shopping stinks? Amen. Let me tell you three things about Frisco Bible. Number one is you are taught well from this pulpit. You are led well and you are loved well. And you know that is not every church in town. And so uh, we are so thankful to be in unity with uh, this church, and it's been a godsend, and so we love being a part of this congregation. In 1990, H.G. Bessinger came out with the book called Friday Night Lights. Now, maybe you never read the book, but maybe you saw the movie, or maybe you never saw the movie, but maybe you saw the television show that was on for several years. It was a book that was based on the 1988 Odessa Permian High School football team. Any West Texas folks out here? Mojo. Okay, Mojo right there. Thank you very much. Um, so, in 1988, Bessinger was a um, reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he wanted to write a book on high school football. And he wanted to find the quintessential high school football town, and he found it in Odessa, Texas. And so, in 1988, he moved his entire family to Odessa, Texas, and they lived there for the entire football season. They got to know the coaches and the players and the families and interviewed the residents. Now, let me just give you a little bit of sports statistics 
of the greatness of the Odessa Permian football team during the 1980s. They had undefeated seasons in 1980, 81, 84, 89, 91, and 1993. They were the state champions, 5A. Now that's 6A in high school football, but 5A, they were the state champions in 1980, 84, 89, and 91. They were the runner-up to state champions in 1985 and 1995. Now you're thinking to yourself, Okay, George is talking about Odessa Permian High School football because maybe he played football for Odessa Permian and, you know, and got the, all the spoils of victory. Well, I did play football in the early 80s, high school football, but I played for one of the victims. So Denton High School, 1985. Uh, here I am right here. Uh, I had hair back then. Wow. Um, we thought we were hot stuff. This was my senior year. We had won district. We had won by district. We had won area. And if we won this next game, we were two games away from the state championship. And our next opponent was Odessa Permian out in Odessa. Now, let me just read to you the scores of the other games that took place that weekend. These are all the uh, 5A Championship, the area scores. So, Irving MacArthur, 24, Midland Lee, 21. Cypress Fairbanks, 35, Louisville, 7. Conroe, 17, Plano East, 7. Houston Jones, 26, Pasadena Dobie, 21. Houston Yates, 19, West Orange Stark, 6. San Antonio Holmes, 35, Alice, 29. Converse Judson, 28. San Antonio East Central, 13. All competitive. There was a game. It was competitive. The score of our game, 41-0. Now, we were not a bad team. But on that field, on that day, we were just outplayed. So to quote George Washington and Hamilton, we were outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and outplanned. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where it's just completely over your head? You are completely at the end of your rope. You're overwhelmed physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually. Have you been there? See, we're going to meet somebody today who has been there, who knows exactly what it is like to be in that type of situation. We're going to be in 2 Kings 18 and 19. So two chapters in 2 Kings. Now I'm going to go on and tell you, if you've got a Bible in front of you, I would love for you to have it open because I can only put just a couple of verses up here. And so if you've got a Bible, open, scroll, whatever you need to do to get to 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Now, as Wayne has been explaining in this series, we've been looking at the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah and what are the lessons that we can glean from those kings. So our king this morning is King Hezekiah. So 2 Kings, chapters 18 and 19, and we're going to start in chapter 18. Very simple outline today. Five characters, five applications. And you got those in your notes right in front of you. So five characters and five applications. Well, I told you the message is about Hezekiah. So our very first character is Hezekiah. Hezekiah, name in Hebrew, means the Lord has strengthened. We read about Hezekiah in other parallel passages. We, of course, here in 2 Kings 18 and following, but also 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, and also in Isaiah 36 through 39. Hezekiah is the son of King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is as bad 
of a fatherly role model as you could possibly have. He was an evil king. And in his 16-year reign in Jerusalem, he did terrible things to the nation. They were facing invasion from, a, from the north, from Samaria and from Damascus, modern-day Syria. And so King Ahaz thought it would be a good idea to go in cahoots with the Assyrians. Now, let me go on and tell you, Old Testament history, anytime you see the Assyrians on the scene, anytime you see the Babylonians on the scene, it's not a good thing. But he decided, I'd rather cast my lot with this enemy rather than the other enemy. And so he cast his lot with Assyria. And what happens as a result is now we have not only Canaanite gods that, the, that uh, Judah never dealt with, but now we have Assyrian gods. It gets so bad that King Ahaz introduces Assyrian cultic worship in the temple. It gets so bad that King Ahaz sacrifices his own son, Hezekiah's brother, to an Assyrian foreign god. Rabbit trail. Free of charge. You didn't ask for it, but you get one. Hezekiah is a story of a family that is redeemed. Now, I know anytime I speak in an audience, some of you have experienced incredible horror, incredible abuse at the hands of the very person that was supposed to love you. God can redeem that. We see that here in Hezekiah. Hezekiah becomes one of the greatest kings, and he has the worst family role model possible. And God wants to redeem it if you allow him to. And I know for some of you in this room, you know that because you've lived that story. And for others of you, I'd encourage you to embrace that. There, end of that rabbit trail. Now what you're going to see is you're going to see the polar opposite of Ahaz, the father, and Hezekiah, the son. We find this passage in 1 Kings 18.3. It says, And he, Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Now, that phrase there, all, uh, according to all that David his father has done, it is only said of four kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, and it's not said of a single king in the northern king, uh, kingdom of Israel. So it's said the other three are Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Josiah. David's the gold standard of kingly rule because he followed God. Even when he screwed up, he knew he was always supposed to turn to God. And we're going to see that happen in Hezekiah's life as well. As Hezekiah comes of age, Ahaz the dad and Hezekiah the son start ruling together so Hezekiah can learn the ropes of what it means to be a good king. And somewhere around 715 B.C., King Ahaz dies, and Hezekiah is now solo. And Hezekiah immediately starts undoing all the junk that his dad had done to the nation. So what he does, he uh, removes the uh, altars and the high places that were out in the countryside that were based on Canaanite worship, and he brings worship back centralized to the temple. He cleanses the temple that had been desecrated by the Assyrian gods. And he reinstitutes the worship calendar in Judah. 
the nation of Judah was not celebrating Passover. Think about this. This is a Jewish nation, and they're not even celebrating any of their holidays. That's like us saying, well, we're just going to skip Christmas and Easter this year. And he says, we're bringing all this stuff back. And so he comes in and he cleans house. And what you're going to see is while Ahaz, his dad, is marked by faithlessness, you're going to see with Hezekiah that he is marked with faithfulness and trust. Now that word trust, we're going to camp over here because we're going to come back to that over and over and over again in the message. Well, continuing on with kind of a summary statement of Hezekiah, Again, 2 Kings 18, 5 and 6, it says, He, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. So here's your big idea. If you don't remember anything else, if you completely zone out from this point forward, here's the one thing I want you to take away. Hezekiah knew that he was not ultimately in charge. Hezekiah was great because he was trusting in the greater king, the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and of earth. Now, part of this process of undoing the junk that his dad had done. We talked about the religious reforms. We also dealt with some of the external threats. So Hezekiah deals with the Philistines, and the Philistines have always been a burr in the saddle of the Jewish people. And the other thing Hezekiah wants to do is he wants to get out of this arrangement that they have with the Assyrians. They're sending money up to Assyria. And so what's going on parallel is introducing to our third character, which is Sennacherib. So Sennacherib comes to the throne um, around 705 BC, somewhere along those lines. And if you know anything about the Assyrians, the Assyrians prior in 722 BC had completely decimated the northern kingdom of Israel. So this is a different ruler than who took out the northern kingdom, but Sennacherib comes to power and he's having to consolidate power. Um, there's rivals that are trying to uh, try to take over. So Hezekiah hears about a new ruler who's having his hands full dealing with other things, and he says, this is my chance. This is my chance to break free from the Assyrians. And so what he does is that he goes in, he, he goes in, in into a, an alliance with other nations. So we have Judah down here, uh, up here above where the speakers are, that's Phoenicia. Uh, so, and then right here is the Philistines, and down here is going to be Egypt. So all four of these nations were paying tribute to the Assyrians, and all four of them said, this is our chance to make a break. And so we're going to break free from the Assyrian rule, and we're going indep to become independent. Now, what happens with this is what's really cool is that you actually see the Assyrian records... Outside of Scripture, saying line for line the exact same thing that we read in Scripture. This is historical fact. So the Assyrians, what they report back is during this time is that they get sick of this and they say, well, we're going to take care of things. And the Assyrians come down and they take care of the Phoenicians. They come down here, they take care of the, uh, of the Philistines, and they camp out right here in a place called Lachanish with the idea that we're going to siege Jerusalem. The Assyrian records talk about that they took over 46 Judean cities. 
They decimated the land. The only thing left was Jerusalem. The Assyrian records say that they took over 200,000 prisoners of war. They decimated the army. And listen to the words of Sennacherib. These are his own words of what he says about Hezekiah. He says, as for Hezekiah the Judean, I besieged 46 of his fortified walled cities and surrounding smaller towns, which were without number. He himself, Hezekiah, I locked up in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. So here's our scene. You've got Hezekiah is stuck in Jerusalem. The rest of his nation has been taken over. He's got an Assyrian army that is coming and advancing and has taken out two of the allies. Hezekiah says, I've got to take care of my people. I do not want my people to go through a long, lengthy siege and for innocent people to die. So Sennacherib, what do you need from me so that you'll just leave us alone? And Sennacherib comes back and he says, okay, you're willing to give money? I'll tell you what I want. And it says, I want 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, we don't barter in talents anymore, so let me convert that for you. Metal talent is about 75 pounds. So Sennacherib says, all right, you want to pay me off? How about this? 22,500 pounds of silver and 2,250 pounds of gold. Where are you going to find that? The only place Hezekiah can find that is in the temple and in his palace. And he strips them bare. Strips the temple bare, strips the palace bare, and he wants to pay them off, pay the ransom money for his people so that they will be safe. We'll jump down to verse 17 in um, 2 Kings 18. 18. So 2 Kings 18, 17. So after he's paid off this exorbitant ransom, It says, and the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rapsaris, and the Rapshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and they went up and came to Jerusalem. You're going to say, wait, wait a second. We just paid you off. You have all of our gold. You have all of our silver. Why are you still coming? Well, the Assyrians, they smelled blood. They want more money. And so we're going to come in and take over. And so here's Hezekiah. This alliance they formed, it's crumbling. The, the Phoenicians are no more. The Philistines are no more. Egypt's no help. And I've paid off this ransom, and the ransom isn't helped as well. And now I've got these three guys, and I've got this great army at my door. Now, these three guys, the Tartan, the Rapsaris, and the Rapshakeh, um, these are probably titles in your Bibles. If you're maybe reading something like the New International Version or Holman Christian Standard, it will um, translate it and say that, you know, the Tartan's probably the general and uh, the Rabshakeh is the chief spokesman. Um, these are not personal names. Well, we want to focus on this guy, the Rabshakeh, because this is going to be our third character. Rabshakeh literally means chief cupbearer. Now you're thinking to yourself, chief cupbearer, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, Nehemiah was the chief cupbearer in the Babylonian um, captivity, which is coming after this. So is this guy an official, like this is a government official position, or is this guy just a butler? Now, 
I'm going to give you George's theory. And this is purely just George's theory and nobody else's. Don't tell Wayne I told you this. Who would speak really good Hebrew? Just curious. Who would speak? This is the interactive part. Who would speak really good Hebrew? A Jewish person. Could this have been someone who was captured maybe with the first invasion? And he was a servant in now the king's service. And they're saying, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. Do any of you speak Hebrew? Oh, you, cupbearer, you come be my spokesperson. Just a theory that we can throw out there. Here's how to kind of think about this. Okay, at this point, Wayne would be doing voices. You're not going to get voices with me. I am so sorry. I just do not have that talent. But the Rabshakeh is this guy. He's the little kid, Gordon Dill. Now, Gordon Dill is not the kid that's going to beat you up. Gordon Dill's the kid that's going to tell you that you're going to get beaten up. That's who the Rabshakeh is. So I love this. So just think Sennacherib has green eyes, you know, Scott Farkas, and then, and then Sennacherib is, uh, and then uh, the Rabshakeh is Grover Dill, the little kid. That's all what this guy's doing. He's just saying, look, my guy is getting ready to beat you up. Get ready for it. So what does the Rabshakeh say? So the Rabshakeh and these officials, they go, to the, they go to the edge, to the walls of Jerusalem, where everybody can hear them. And you're going to see two speeches by him. The first one, this is directed to Hezekiah. He's saying, hey, tell this to Hezekiah, but everyone in the city is listening. And this guy speaks impeccable Hebrew, and they hear everything this guy says. So then the Rabshakeh says to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust? Remember, we parked this word trust over here. We're going to come back to that. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think mere words are, are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, well, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to mount on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, this is Sennacherib, Speaking through the Rabshakeh, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Okay, there's a lot there. Let's unpack that really briefly. First off, at the first, he says, the great king. So I'll go back and just show you again. He says, and the Rabshakeh says to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Now you're going to think to yourself, now thus says... Where have I ever heard that before in the Old Testament? Oh, I know, the prophets. Thus says the Lord. The Rabshakeh is the role of a false prophet here. So it's not thus says the Lord. Rabshakeh says, thus says my Lord, Sennacherib. See, Sennacherib, he's the great king. Sennacherib looks at Hezekiah and says, you're just a bird in a cage. 
You're not the great one. I'm the great one here. This again, this idea of trust. Who do you trust in? And so the Rabshakeh is going to throw several things out. First off, he says, well, are you trusting in Egypt? Again, remember that the Egyptians are part of this alliance, and they have no means to help what's going on up there. And plus, they probably don't even want to. We're down to just one puny city in Judah. We'll let Judah fall, and then we'll deal with them a little bit later on. And he's trusting them for horses and for chariots, and they're just not going to come. Now, the Rabshakeh gets a little bit more personal, sorry. Uh, And then he says, second thing, he says, well, are you trusting in your Lord? Again, this is why my theory that I think this guy is actually a Jewish prisoner of war. But he's got really bad theology. See, uh, Sennacherib had learned from probably the other prisoners of war of what Hezekiah had done. He had centralized worship, and he had dealt with the, uh, the false gods, and he had dealt with the high places and the altars. But what the Assyrians thought that meant is, oh, God's mad at you because you destroyed the altars. And no, 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 it's the exact opposite. Hezekiah was doing what God was wanting them to do. So again, we have bad theology here, and the bad theology is going to come back a little bit later on. But again, remember, this guy is talking in Hebrew, and every person is listening, And I guarantee there's some people in Jerusalem going, wow, did Hezekiah really screw up and tick off God? Maybe this guy's right. Maybe we shouldn't be trusting in Hezekiah. And maybe we have been thinking wrong about God. We're going to come back to that in just a second as well. In verses 23 and 24, this is where the arrogance of the Assyrians come out. In those two two verses, uh, the Rabshakeh says, let me give modern-day lingo. Look, this is going to be a slaughter, but let's make it fair. I'll give you 2,000 horses, but the problem is you don't even have 2,000 people to put on the 2,000 horses. And even if you did, one of our trained guys could wipe them up. The Rabshakeh goes on, and he says in verse 25, I am the Lord's instrument of destruction. Now, that's the final blow right there. Um, Circling back to the bad theology in 22, uh, the Rabshakeh says that the Lord told Sennacherib to go and confront the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, before you throw that out and think, oh, that's crazy, that would never happen, 21 years prior to this, That's exactly what happened. The northern kingdom of Israel fell, not because of inferior armies, not because of inferior defenses. The northern kingdom of Israel fell 21 years earlier because Assyria was an instrument of God's destruction. And all these people are listening to this in Hebrew, and they're going, we know what happened 21 years ago. Could that be true for us? Maybe this guy really is speaking the truth. Maybe... We're going to face the same fate as Israel did 20 years ago. Well, at this point, you've got three government officials for uh, Judah. And they go to Sennacherib and they go, Shh, could you stop talking in Hebrew? You're upsetting the people. Well, 
You know what the little kid's going to do when you say that. Well, then the rapshaken stood out and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. And this previous speech, he was talking to Hezekiah, but everybody was hearing. Now he's talking directly to the people who are sitting on the wall watching all this go down. And he says, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given to the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me, come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine and each of one of his own fig tree and each one will drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land that's like your own land. A land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Don't trust in Hezekiah. Don't trust in your Lord trust in me and I'll give you good things. Now, a little side note, I'm going to put you in exile, but it's going to be a land just like your own land. And you're going to have bread and wine, which we're going to celebrate in a couple minutes here. The people are in silence. Now, part of the reason why the people are in silence is because Hezekiah told them not to say anything. But I think as well, they're all thinking, that's a pretty good offer. I don't want to die. I don't, Hezekiah's plans aren't working out so well. And I don't see the Lord showing up and rescuing us. Maybe we need to go with them. Well, the three officials at this point, they rend their clothes and they go back to Hezekiah and they report back everything that the Rabshakeh said to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah rends his clothes and puts on sackcloth. And notice what he does. He goes to the temple to pray. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Every single event in Hezekiah's life, he goes to the Lord in prayer. Why is he like David? It's because that's what he did. When, the, when stuff went bad, he knew immediately who to go to, to go to the Lord in prayer. While he's in the temple, he says, could you go talk to Isaiah? Now, Isaiah has been a prophet on the scene for 40 years. He's seen the good kings and he's seen the bad kings. Trust me, Isaiah has seen it all. And here's what Isaiah says in 2 Kings 19, 6-7. Isaiah says to them, say to your master, say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, not thus says Sennacherib, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now we see in the very next verse, if you're following along, that for, uh, the Egyptians 
are coming up to engage the Assyrians, again, around the city of Lachish. And so the Assyrian army leaves Jerusalem and goes down here to engage the Egyptians. But before they do, Sennacherib sends a letter to Hezekiah. And the letter, in essence, basically says, once again, none of the other gods have saved any other of the foes. You don't get any crazy ideas that your God's going to get you out of this mess. We're coming back for you. And that brings us to our focus for our prayer. 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 14, Hezekiah has this letter. And Hezekiah is trying to figure out, who am I going to trust in? And the passage says that Hezekiah goes into the temple and lays the letter before the Lord. I'm at my end. I got nothing left in the tank, God. If you don't show up, if you don't pull through in this, everything I have will be gone. But more importantly than that, God, he's making a joke of you. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, Oh Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of earth may know you, O Lord, our God, alone. final character is the Lord. Now, you know the Lord's always the main character in every story. Hezekiah has to decide, am I going to trust in Sennacherib? No, I'm not going to trust in him. Am I going to trust in myself? No, my plans aren't working out too well. Hezekiah knew that he was not ultimately in charge. Hezekiah was great because he was trusting in the greater king, the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. So applications of what happens with Hezekiah, several things I'll just throw out to you. Number one is you'll notice with Hezekiah every single time in this instance and every other time in his life, Hezekiah always goes to the Lord first in prayer. Now, prayer is not my strong suit. There, I've said it. It's not the first thing I do in my own life. Prayer is usually the last thing. How bad do things have to be in my life before I actually pray about those things? Now, of course, God already knew the contents of the letter. But in this sacrificial act of him going before the Father and laying it down, it was this idea of surrender. And you see, in my own life, 
I usually depend on myself. I'll pull myself up by the bootstraps. I can try harder. But the idea of, God, I got nothing to give in this. I'm surrendering it to you. Hezekiah trusts in the Lord and the greater king enthroned in his rightful place. The Lord has not left the scene. The Lord is not absent. The Lord is still on his throne. But see what happens many times in our own lives? Um, either God never enters my mind. God's, God and the things of God are not even on my radar screen. Or worse, I actually do think God has left me, that God has abandoned me. But God is still on his throne. Hezekiah trusts in the Lord, the greater king, the maker of heaven and earth, and nothing on this earth is not his. My kids, my family, my job, my finances, my health, all of those things are his. Hezekiah trusts in the Lord of the greater king, the only real king in this entire episode. Sennacherib is not the great king, even though he thinks he is. Hezekiah is not the great king because all of his plans have ended up not working. I'm not the great king either. God's the only one in charge. Hezekiah trusts in the Lord and the greater king, the living one. God's not dead. He's not some some lifeless idol. He is active, he is alive, and he is present. And we will celebrate that in just a moment here at the communion table. And finally, Hezekiah trusts in the Lord as the greater king, the only one whose glory really matters. See, this prayer is not about Hezekiah's survival. Sure, he wants his people to survive. He wants his kingdom to survive. At the very end of his prayer, he says, God, this is about your glory, So in my own life, what happens if I end up looking weak? I end up looking like I don't have it all together. I look like I'm not the leader I'm supposed to be in this situation. Yet God gets the glory. Am I okay with that? In my flesh, I'm really not. What happens if what I prayed for, it's good things, it's noble things, but God in his infinite wisdom decides to answer the prayer in a different way that gives him glory. Am I okay with that? In my flesh, I'm really not. Hezekiah says, look, whatever happens with this, I want you to get the glory, Father. So what happens in the story? Well, the prophet Isaiah comes back and says, here's what's going to happen. The Assyrians, they're going to leave and not a shot is going to be fired. You're going to have prosperity back in the land. It's going to take three years, but prosperity is going to come back in the land. And Sennacherib is going to meet his own fate. And it plays out exactly that way. We read that that night, the angel of the Lord comes and slays 185,000 Assyrians. And the rest of the army says, we're out of here. And they leave with a single shot fired. Prosperity comes back to the land. Hezekiah will rule for another 15 years. And Sennacherib, later in his life, meets his own defeat at the hands of his sons, and two of his sons kill him. So what's the application for us? Five things. Number one, application of prayer. Every single problem we bring before the Lord in prayer and surrender because he is the greater king. It's not the first thing in my life, and it should be. 
Application number two of peace. We trust in the Lord as the greater king who is always enthroned in his rightful place. I am at peace because I know that God still reigns on his throne. Application number three, stewardship. We trust in the Lord as the greater king, remembering that there is nothing in the earth that is not his. Application number four is surrender. We trust the Lord as the greater king, remembering that he is alive and active in our lives. And application number five, we must trust the Lord as the greater king, the only one whose glory matters. Now, please hear me very carefully in this. In my prayer life, my needs are important. Your needs are important. But my needs are temporary. There is an eternal God who's at work. My suffering, as painful as it is, is temporary. My trials, as long as they may seem, is temporary. And our earthly pleasures, as much fun as they are in the moment, is temporary. It's God's glory is the thing that's eternal. You know, God's at work in so many bigger ways than we can even comprehend. I have no idea what you're going through. I have no idea the pain you're going through. I have no idea the sadness you're going through. I have no idea the worry, the suffering, the physical limitations. But I can tell you three things. I can tell you, number one, that you are greatly loved by a heavenly father who is the maker of every single thing in your life. You are greatly loved by a saving son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and died for your sin and for your junk so that you don't have to. And you are greatly loved and greatly empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer in Christ Jesus. See, here's the thing. God has not abandoned you. God has overtaken you and overwhelmed you. And he resides in you in the triune God in love. We come to the Lord's table. See, this, this is where you lay your letter. It's that act of sacrifice of just as Hezekiah. This is where you lay your letter. See, it's here at this table. This is where the loving action of the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, all come together. For any of you who have placed your trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, you are welcome to come and, and partake when we make that announcement. We will go by rows. You will come out to your right. You will take the elements and you will come back to your seat and sit and just hold the elements in your hands until we will partake together. Now, while you're coming, there's going to be a song that's played and we're going to have the words up on the screen. The song is called To the Table by Zach Williams. And I want you to Listen to the words. So let's rise and come take the elements. Hear the voice. 
Bring it all to the table. There's nothing he ain't seen before. For all your fears, all your sorrows, and your sadness, there's a Savior and he calls. Bring it all to the table. See, snack rib offered bread and wine. But it was the bread and wine of this world. The Savior offers you bread and wine. 
but it's the bread and wine that's eternal. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that, on the, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. And the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. The body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Jesus poured out for us. Gracious Father, we have so little to say in comparison to your great sacrifice. The only thing left is thank you. Remind us how hard it was to give your son for us. Remind us of the pain he suffered. Remind us of your love. Remind us of the hope that we have in you. Refresh our souls with the joy of our salvation. Thank you for the saints who have gone before us, who have shared in this same meal of reflection and proclamation. Thank you for those who will come after us, who will join in this same observance. May we take our place today, declaring with faith that Jesus, whom we remember in the bread and the cup, died for us and rose again and will one day come back for his own. Oh, bless your people, the body of Christ assembled here in his name. Until he comes, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer, peace, stewardship, surrender, glory. May the trials that you face, may they not drive you away from your heavenly Father, but may the trials drive you closer to him so that he can get all of the glory. Will you please stand with me? And as the prayer team comes forward, if you got stuff to lay at the table, we have folks that would love to pray with you. But as you go, I want to read the words of Revelation 5, 12 through 13, where all of heaven proclaims this. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.